to the Dollars and Hops podcast, where we help you optimize your financial future. Here are your hosts, Scott and Lance. Welcome back to the Dollars and Hops podcast 2023. Here we are. My name is Lance. I'm your host, where we help you optimize your financial future. And we sip on some fun drinks while we do it. I got my co-host joining me here, Scotter, brother from another. How you been, man? Been too long. It has been far too long. We left everybody with a big old cliffhanger, Lance. You know, it's the new year and <laughs> we did right. Airbnb part one. I don't know when you published it. It was like December and uh, yeah, maybe early December. So it's been a little while. I think that's right. And yeah. uh, we teased part two and then we went on a little hiatus. So sorry about that. Yeah. But we are excited. Tonight is where we get into like the actual nuts and bolts of like, here's how to go do it. If you want to actually do some Airbnb investing, we'll give you some great tips tonight. Um, and I am very much looking forward to getting into this one. But before we do, each and every episode, Lance and I will sip on a craft brew. It's our way of having a little bit of fun. We put them head to head. We rate them. We put them on our website at dollarsandhops.com. It's a darn good looking website, Lance. I might Ooh, add. Look at that really, website. Really good refresh. website. Oh, boy. Website solid. <laughs> so, uh, Lance, what are you sipping on this evening? What What am I up against here? Oh, yeah. So I, I kept Scotter in the dark on this one. Um, it, it appears that um, uh, he, he was a little thrown off by that. He's like, Lance, what are you, what are you drinking tonight? And I said, it's a surprise. So 2023, a lot of people are doing the New Year's uh, resolutions and goals and all that. And, uh, you know, fitness uh, and health water? are usually a part of that. <laughs> it's not water. It's not water. But it's close. <laughs> this is a hard seltzer water tonight going strong at a hard 100 calories that's right a hard 100 calories five percent alcohol by volume and this one <laughs> happens to be by the greatest private label oh, in the world I love it. Love silly it, love kirkland's uh costco's brand of hard seltzer this is the black cherry flavor uh, and i have been enjoying this uh yeah kind of over the break and kind of like you know, kind of get on a health kick, a little fitness, a little working out, a little weight loss. And uh, yeah, this, this was, uh, I forget, the right time to break this out and go hard seltzer. Kirkland's hard seltzer, black cherry, Scotter. Never in got? a million years would I have thought that we were going to be featuring a Kirkland signature <laughs> drink on the show. But here we are. It was time. You know, it was January. time. This is the content you, you gonna, paid for. I thought you were going to hit me with dry January. <laughs> but uh, all right, I, I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, black yeah. cherry, it's going to be. I Black think January last year we did. Fun. I think last year we did dry January. You did, uh, not, yes. Not this year. Um, yeah, I did. I, I haven't not, committed not to such year. a thing in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> all right, Lance. I am going. At the, and and first off, I have to shout out my my aunt and uncle here. This is um, uh, Aunt Carol, Uncle Dan from uh, Ohio, brought me aunt this one. Aunt Carol. Uncle Dan, come yeah, on with the yeah. shout out. Love it. From Ohio. This is this is Brewdog, the Hazy Jane Pineapple. They must be listeners, Lance, because they got me a hazy IPA. They knew. And it's a fruity hazy, which is, you know, you know the pineapple. Love it. So uh, excited oh, to uh, dig into this one this evening. Rock on. All right, Lance, let's go ahead and get into the money hack of the week. 
we were just talking about this right before the pod, uh, or right before we hit record. Um, and it's doing a 30 day financial audit slash challenge. So, uh, what we're that talking name really about makes here, it found sound a lot less fun when you say a 30 day audit challenge. Like we got to get a better name, more catchy name than that. A 30 day financial challenge, 30 day. Uh, I have spend, no idea. Yeah. Retrospective spend challenge. I don't know. Something. Yeah. So this a retro is like, challenge? I mean, is it really that fun to look at what you spent? It's oh, really that's why not. you got it. That's why you got to make it sound. That's why fun. you got to you gotta, make it gotta, sound like it's you know. like something super cool. But I mean, that's right. At the end of the day, what you're doing is for 30 days, you you're retro or for a 30 day period, you're retroactively going back, and you are putting every piece of spending, every single line item of spending that you did in a 30 day period onto a spreadsheet, categorize and look at your spending, look at where your money is actually going. I mean, we're all walking around with credit cards in our pocket. We're all swiping them or we're using the chip or the tap or whatever the heck we're using. And um, it's easy to get carried away and kind of not even think about mm. it. You just see the bill at the end of the month? Oh, dude, for sure. Apple Pay, Google Pay, you know, tap and pay, uh, you name it. What, with your watch now these days, you're Venmoing and you're, you know, square cashing and who knows where all this money's going, man. Where's all my money going? Where's it going? It, it, yeah, yeah. So I think this is like a good way to actually like get a hold of what's going on in your life. I mean, we talk about we've done episodes on budgeting and, and things like that, but retroactively, um, Lance, thank you so much for the, uh, the visual there on the black cherry <laughs> hard seltzer. That is it's good. unbelievably, we'll it, it just looks delicious. I got to tell you, it's, it's nice. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what I was talking about, but, but yeah, retroactively look 30 days back, create a spreadsheet line by line, categorize what you're spending money on and take a look at, you know, where you can possibly shore up some, 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 uh, some, some spending, uh, because, um, without you actually kind of doing that, it's hard to really know what you're spending. Like you can go on mint.com and it can break things out into like categories and stuff like that. But like, to actually like go line by line item, it, it it's kind of eye opening, especially when you do it for a thirty day period. That's really true, and, and I think how many of us are really using cash that often? I mean, you could probably count in the past thirty days how many times you used cash, if any, if at all. I pay my and babysitter so in cash, and that's about yeah. it. Nice. Okay, so you're gonna list your cash ones first, then take all the cards that you swipe and include Venmo and include Square and PayPal and anything else you're using. I mean, most everybody's probably using, if you're listening to this podcast, a credit card or debit card to pay for anything and everything. And just go day by day on every single payment vehicle you have and log it all on a spreadsheet, create categories for it. You know, these are housing expenses. This is my gasoline spend um, for our household. This is our food spend, eating out, all this. I guarantee you, you will find something, probably a lot of things that you did not expect through this challenge. You will yeah. learn something about your behavior. And personal finance is like, man, I don't know, 90% behavior. Uh, you know, it's 10% knowledge to know the right things to do with your money. It's 90% behavior. This is like a 30-day challenge on checking your behavior and like, hey, where's my money going? Where is our money actually going? Um, it's, just, it's just a really cool challenge. And you know what? I might do it myself. 
I need I need to. I I'm actually kind of terrified to do it, but I yeah, I, I am I too. That's to. kind of the only reason I don't want to do it is because I'm like I might like have a heart attack, but um, you know, probably yeah. I need, that probably means I need to do it. Exactly. Yep, I agree. Yeah. So, um, all right, Lance, let's go ahead and we're, we're going to hop into the uh, main topic here. We're talking about Airbnb investing. Uh, this is a part two episode. So if you haven't listened to part one, I would highly encourage you to kind of go back on uh, part one. We covered kind of what is Airbnb, kind of the technology stack that you would be looking at if you wanted to do some investing in Airbnb, um, kind of what sort of team you would need on the ground, um, you know, a cleaner and a handyman and all that stuff. And and just just general overview of Airbnb, but but this episode, Lance, we're actually getting into sort of the nuts and bolts of hey, like let's say somebody says, okay, Scott, I listened, you know, Scott and Lance, I, I listened to your last episode. This seems very interesting to me. Uh, what are the different like how do I do this, and kind of what are the different types of Airbnb investing? So that's what we're going to kind of get into. Uh, um, on the pod today. Um, and I just want to hop right in and talk about what type of investor you are. Um, and there's three main ways of investing in Airbnb or short-term rentals. And I think that most people, um, probably 95 plus percent of you that are listening to this right now would say there's the only thing that they would think of is, is okay, I buy a house or I have a house and I listed on Airbnb as a short-term rental. That is one type of, of investing when it comes to short-term rentals. But there's actually two more, Lance. Uh, you've got co-hosting and rental arbitrage. Um, so co-hosting is essentially when you are managing someone else's property. So you might, you're basically becoming their property manager and there's all kinds of uh, co-hosting opportunities out there. Basically anybody that's got a property set up with a property manager could be a potential uh, a client. And what you'll find is that most of these property owners are not really that happy with these large property management firms because they might have a property manager that they call into and they might not be very responsive. They might not be able to get the support that they feel like they need. They might feel like their prices They're are too low, 246 properties in that area and, you know, they can't really get to you quite as fast. I, I can tell you from firsthand experience, when we bought our um, uh, condo in Ocean City, Maryland, we signed up with a property manager, a very large property manager. And um, when we signed up, I don't know, they probably had, the guy that we were working with was probably like, 20 to 30 properties that he was working on. And when we left um, working with them, I think he was managing like over a hundred. So Ooh, let's just say the response time wasn't the greatest. Uh, the maintenance crew was not the greatest. Uh, the we, It was just problem after problem. So co-hosting is a real opportunity because you are kind of a dedicated person to a specific uh, property owner. And uh, many of these co-hosts will take 25% of uh, gross revenue um, after the cleaning fee is deducted. So, you know, you get a property that's, that's doing 100K, um, you know, that's, that's $25,000 in your pocket. And you're not the one with the upfront investment. You're literally just, just 
you know, setting the prices, doing the marketing, doing the listing, doing the guest communication, that stuff. So there's a real opportunity here to get into Airbnb um, without much investment at all. Could be as little as zero dollars through co-hosting. Mm. That's uh, pretty appealing. I I, I got to be honest. When I first looked at a you know short-term rental investing and everything, I had never even heard of co-hosting. And the more I learned about it, I was like, wow, that's that's actually like a, a brilliant model. Um, it, but I, I kind of had the question of like, surely there's no property owners who would pay that kind of fee to do the, you know, to manage that property. That seems a little bit high of a fee. But then I started thinking about it and I was like, well, most long-term uh, property management companies are 10 to 15%. Yeah. You know, and so it would make sense that a short-term would be higher than that because there's more work involved. There's turnovers. There's more communication involved. There's more... And there's higher profit margins, there's higher cash flow opportunities. And so if the owner can still cash flow adequately after the 20 to 25% fee to the co-host, I'm like, man, that's a, that's a deal. It's kind of like a deal that yeah. works both ways. Like there's people that are, that literally want to get, want to get into um, owning a second home and they, their whole goal is to ba- break even and have somebody else basically pay their mortgage down for them. And they get to enjoy it one or two, two weeks a year. And they're perfectly fine with that. And those are the types of owners you would want to co-host for um, all day. You know, they're, they're, they're the ones that, you know, they've got a high paying job. They don't want to um, take away their, their time from, from that job to kind of manage a property and they're willing to pay. Um, and of course, a lot of the property management companies are really large and um, not very good. So <laughs> it's a good opportunity. Um, yeah. The next, the next uh, type of investor is, is the rental arbitrage investor, Lance. So this is, um, this is also a way to get in for a lot less than actually buying a home and putting it on Airbnb. This is, is essentially leasing a space um, or a home from someone else. So you're, you're renting from somebody else. And within your lease uh, with your, your landlord, um, you put a provision that basically allows you to sublease it. So it allows you to do short-term rental inside of your um, rental agreement with your landlord. So typically we see this with smaller spaces, but it could be for a full home. And you're not going to have kind of the autonomy that you would if you owned the property yourself, where like you could just put in a fire pit and you could go, you know, change the color on the walls and like you could, you know, change out the appliances and do all these things. Like the the, the space is kind of static, but at the same time, all you really have to do is put up, you know, two months rent and you're in and you have to furnish the place. You don't have to come up with a massive down payment to get in. Um, so it's another way to sort of uh, get into the Airbnb investment game, but for a much smaller upfront. Fee. I guess the takeaway from those three ideas um, are, you know, from owning it yourself to co-hosting to rental arbitrage, what you just outlined is like, you know, if you're really interested in this and like you love this idea and you want to jump in, but you can't afford to buy a property yourself right now, which is probably most people, it's a huge commitment, huge, huge investment. Um, I think that the excuse of like, Hey, I really want to do this, but I can't afford it. 
um, that's really not a great excuse now knowing that there's, man, there's other opportunities. You could jump in, do the research, make some phone calls, understand how to maybe start a co-hosting business or, or rental arbitrage if you're really that interested in it. It's, you know, there's not just the barrier of like, I don't have enough money. There's ways to do it on, on little to no money. Right. And we're not going to really focus so much on co-hosting or rental arbitrage kind of the rest of the episode, but I want, I want people to understand that basically your ROI is infinite on the coast on the co-hosting side because you're really not putting any money in other than what it takes to set up your business. Um, and you know, you're making great money, you know, 20, 25% of, of gross. And then on the rental arbitrage side, um, your, your cash on cash return, which is basically the money that you outlay versus the money that you earn, uh, the first year, um, it's pretty typical to get all of the money that you outlay on a rental arbitrage deal back in the same year. So let's say you put $20,000 into furnishings and um, kind of the upfront fees for the, for the lease. Um, you know, the right, the right arbitrage deal, you should be able to make $20,000 in cash flow um, to more than offset your, um, your upfront fees and then everything else is kind of gravy from there. So mm. your, your returns on your investment on the rental arbitrage side and the co-hosting side are much, much higher than they are doing buy and hold. Um, so just keep that in mind as we kind of go through this. Um, I don't think, you know, Lance and I, neither one of us have actually done co-hosting or rental arbitrage, mm. but I think that they're very, very, very good ways to get in for uh, little to no money. I love it, man. It's cool. All right. So I just want to hit on a couple general tips before we kind of get into evaluation of an investment property, kind of what makes an, a good investment. Number one is, um, and, and I did this uh, when we got into, um, when we decided we wanted to uh, manage our rental ourselves, but it was, it was investing in a training program. So there's all kinds of them out there, you know, do a quick Google search. I'm sure you can find them. Um, but uh it makes a whole lot of sense to uh, invest in somebody's training program, like a video program, where they will essentially walk you through best practices on how to set up your automation, all your software stack, um, everything that you would need to actually get started with Airbnb or VRBO investing. Um, and they'll tell you kind of how to make it passive. So how to set up the automated messages, when the automation, when the automation, automated messages should go out, what they should say, um, how to, how to run investment analysis. Um, some of the stuff that we're talking about, you know, pr pretty much everything we're talking about here today would be covered in a course like that. And, you know, they can be anywhere from 500 bucks to, you know, 1500, $2,000 for a course, but the amount of time that they will save you, um, is incredible. So it just takes your learning curve down so, 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 so much. Um, so I would highly recommend Yeah. I, that. And, and I agree. I didn't, I didn't pay for a course and take a course, but I, I did get to glean a lot from you. And I basically felt like yeah, I, I was going to say I was, you were course. my course and I definitely <laughs> I got the benefits of the course, like the analyzing spreadsheet, learning the terms, learning the different uh, software places you can go and the different hardware technology to use and how it integrates and some of it I learned on the fly just doing it 
And some of it I learned directly from you, from what you learned from the course. So some of those courses can definitely be worth it if you feel like you're kind of struggling and this is not really your wheelhouse, but you're interested in moving forward and looking and kind of committing some dollars to learning. I agree with Scott. I think this is actually uh, money well spent if it's on the right course, because I'm sure there's massive amounts of doo-doo hot pile of garbage courses out there, but there are some, some like best in class ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've- you want to plug the one you took? Uh, yeah, it was by Michael Elefante. Um, I yeah. think it's called Airbnb Investor Academy is what it is, what it's called. But, uh, yeah. great course. Can't recommend it enough. I mean, just step by cool. step, but kind of, kind of dummy proof. So <laughs> I, I, nice. uh, I learned quite a bit. Um, uh, next point here I had was, uh, short-term rentals are sort of unique in that there are a lot of laws going into effect all across the country as it relates to short-term rentals. So um, this is popping up because there are people that are buying homes that are like sitting in the middle of a residential neighborhood and they're doing short-term rental and a lot of the neighbors don't want transient, you know, guests coming in and out um, when they're, you know, might have their kids around or whatever the case might be. So uh, before you kind of get into doing this, uh, you're definitely going to want to check your uh, local county and your city um, laws in the state that you're in to make sure that um, you're allowed to do a short-term rental uh, where where you're planning on, on doing one because there's a lot of different places. I was looking in Virginia, Lance, and I can tell you like the first four or five cities that we were interested in investing, they, they've got them outlawed. You, you can't do a short-term mm. rental at all. And then there's certain cities that are like, oh, you can do a short-term rental, but it basically needs to be like a uh, ADU in your backyard. You know, yeah. so it's like kind of like Charleston, South Carolina. I think they have yeah. something like that. So, like, you yeah. got to look into residence. this before you get too yeah. far down. And then, and then you got to also check your HOAs because if if the house is in mm-hmm. an HOA and the HOA outlaws it, well, then you're kind of SOL. So, um, just in general, an HOA is not the greatest thing for a short term rental because they could change their bylaws and put you out of business immediately. So, something else to, to kind of consider. And then last unique homes just tend to do best on Airbnb. So the more unique, the better. Typically there's a potato in Idaho that's on Airbnb right now, Lance. That's getting, it's like the old potato that was like on the side of the road is like a (laughs) display piece. Somebody bought it and then converted it to a dwelling unit and they're crushing and they're crushing. Yeah. They're crushing it. Who wants to go stay in the potato? I mean, I don't, but I'm sure lots of people do. So. Right. There's a lot of people in the United States of America. You only need a very, <laughs> very small sliver of them to want to stay in a potato and you're, you're good to go. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. Unique, true. unique tends to be, uh, to, to, to be better. So, um, all right, Lance, let's go ahead and get into kind of evaluating, uh, what makes a good Airbnb, uh, as far as numbers go. So you want to take this a little bit, like, like, I want to talk about cash on cash return, Lance, and how we use cash on cash to kind of evaluate what is a good investment and what's not. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of the 
the thing that started opening my eyes, I think in terms of numbers and spreadsheets, it's helpful for me to see and understand, oh, that number, that lever makes this number go up, go down. Oh, this is how you account for these types of expenses. Um, I think the spreadsheet that Scott has a template of um, where basically what you're doing is you're taking the purchase price of the property or the asking price, you're, um, you know, you're looking at what percentage of down payment would you need, maybe 10% if you're using a second home loan or 20% or even 25% if you're doing like a debt service coverage ratio loan, a DSCR loan. Um, There are basically, then there's spots to put all the other expenses you can think of, you know, how much, how many bedrooms and bathrooms and how much to furnish this if it doesn't come furnished already. And then just basically think about all the variables that you could possibly think of and make sure they're captured in the spreadsheet calculation point, you know, and then everything that's just your upfront capital expenses. Then you have your expenses to actually run the property month to month operating expenses. What I mean by that is um, going to be your electricity utilities, any water, any HOA fees, any sort of lawn maintenance or pest control or property. Taxes. Oh yeah, of course, property taxes. And, um, you know, toiletries and toilet paper and paper towels, you know, little stuff like that. Waste, waste, you know, pickup and recycling and all the things. I'm, I've not listed all of them here. There's a lot more. But just to think through that area that you're looking at, this particular property that I'm analyzing, I'm going to put it through this grid. I'm going to take the time. Um, you know, and the more you do this, the more you'll get, you know, you'll get better at it and you'll get quicker at it. And as you learn to understand your market that you're dialing in on, and the idea coming that, you know, you're going to put it into a mortgage calculator or this is my current rate. I talked to a loan officer and he tells me for an investment property or a second home, this is the rate today. Maybe it's six, maybe it's seven, maybe it's 8%. You know, that's about today where they're hovering at. And then knowing that there's a spot to put in your principal, your interest, your taxes, and then basically you come out with a total cost, monthly cost through your mortgage payment and operating expenses. And then the upfront cost for the down payment, the closing costs, um, any furnishing costs, any additions or renovations you're going to make, you're going to add a hot tub, you're going to put some nice lights in, you're going to paint some walls, all that kind of stuff. And basically calculating some pretty crucial numbers and metrics on the return of all that money that you're putting in to acquire this property, get it up to speed, and then operate and run this property month to month. Those are like the kind of the main expenses columns. And then we're going to try and calculate what is the average daily rent, the ADR, or what is the average kind of like monthly rent and even annually kind of, you know, break it all down seasonally based on real data. And Scott, do you want to explain how we can kind of get some insight into those numbers? Yeah. So there's, um, there's a few different tools that we kind of use to to uh, evaluate rental properties. I'd say the best, um, it's it's the best and it's the worst, Lance. But um, <laughs> the best is AirDNA, uh, AirDNA.co, I believe is what the yeah uh, that's yeah, right. AirDNA.co is the website. Um, so on AirDNA, they have a they have a feature called Rentalizer. It allows you to plug in any address in the United States, even abroad, I believe, um, and it'll give you. And then you plug in your bed, your bath, your 
your bed and bath count and then the number of guests that the house would sleep. And it will give you a general idea of what it projects that that home would do if you made it a short-term rental. Um, the reason I say it's the best and the worst tool is because there's good data and there's bad data on AirDNA. It has all the data. So people that rent their home only 15 days a year, the, d- the data is in there and the data is wrong. Right. And then there's, you know, then there's good data, which actually is, you know, people that are renting their home every single day of the year and what they're making. So you kind of have to weed through the good and the bad data to kind of get an idea of what that home will do on, um, on the short-term rental market. And it's pretty accurate once you kind of get rid of the, the junk and then you kind of, you know, you have to be very, um, honest with yourself about your property and how it stacks up to those properties that you're looking at, but it allows you to basically like dial in exactly what the property is, how much money it's making, gives you the Airbnb and the Verbo link. You can click on it, click through and be like, okay, is my property better than this or is it worse than this? And kind of get an idea of what the revenue is that you could expect. So that's one tool. There's another, uh, there's another tool called STR insights. Um, which does very, very similar things, but STR insights allows you to, to actually look at different markets all across the United States without a subscription to sort of every single different market, which is how AirDNA is set up. So it's like, if you want to invest in Myrtle beach on AirDNA, it's a hundred dollars just to look at the data. STR insights, it's like kind of like one subscription and you get access to everything nationwide. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's good in a way that, um, and in the sense, like if you don't know where you want to invest, STR Insights might be better for you. Then there's a free website called DataRabu, uh, R-A-B-U um, dot com. And that is a free website, um, sort of similar to AirDNA, but it doesn't really have as much insight and um, detail. It's just a very basic plug in the address. It gives you a total kind of shows you what comps it's pulling. So those are sort of the three uh, data tools that we use to kind of figure out what your property will do in revenue. And then going back to Lance, what, what Lance was talking about, you plug that into the spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet that I'm talking about, I'm going to link to in the show notes. I'll put it on Google oh, nice. Drive. Cool. And everybody Great. can kind of you know make a copy of that. And if they want to get into this, they can they're more than welcome to use that uh, that spreadsheet. So at the end of the day, what we're looking for here, Lance, is a cash on cash return because that's kind of how we evaluate uh, short-term rental properties. It's basically how much cash are you putting in, right? Up front. Down payment, closing costs, furnishing, renovations, additions, enhancements all your upfront capital expenses right? Um, to acquire the property and get it presentable and ready to rent. Yep. So let's say, just as an example, uh, you know, you buy a home and let's say you're all in with, you know, adding a hot tub, adding a fire pit, all the things. It's $200,000 and you run it, you know, you, you get your projected revenue, you have your monthly operating expenses, all these things, and it comes out with a cash flow of $50,000. That would be a 25% cash on cash return. 50,000 over the 200,000 
is a 25% uh, return on investment. So per um, year, just to break that down a little bit slowly, because yeah. sometimes it's hard to, if you're listening to numbers and, and get a you know full grip on what Scott just said, but he's, he's saying 200,000 all in, that would be your down payment, your closing costs, your furnishing costs, and maybe you put a fire pit in the hot tub or something like that in, you made it ready. It was, that all of that cost 200 grand. And after you did all your calculations, it's going to cash flow, right? Cash, cash flow, flow. Yeah. The 50,000 for the year. Yep. Right. So that, so that's after your monthly operating expenses, right? Correct. But, but the spreadsheet would, would pump out. We think that's going to do X revenue, which means it's going to cash flow this much 50 grand, the 50,000 in cash flow for that first year against your $200,000 that it took to acquire and ready the property, that's the 25% cash on cash return. And Scott, how does 25% cash on cash sound? So I compare it to what I could get like in the stock market, right? I'm putting in my, mm -hmm. you know, let's say my $200,000 and I'm making 25% on that 200,000. It's not passive. I still have to manage the property to get that. But 25% is probably more than I can earn on average in the stock market. So to me, 25% uh, cash on cash return is pretty good because it's probably more than double what I could get in the in the stock market. Um, and it should be. It really should be double because I'm working for that money rather than just yeah. setting it, you know, putting it into the market and I don't have to look at it again. I don't have to do anything for it. So right. this is, you, you know, also have more control over it. It's another aspect of it. You and do. It's, um, you have more control over like how you design it and how you word the marketing and how much you put into marketing and, you know, what are the price points it's you want to hit to try to achieve? It's a small it's a business. Small yeah, business. business. And I think 25% is pretty good. In four years or probably less than, if you're, if you're cash on cash, your first year is 25%, chances are it's going to be higher the next year. So you're probably looking at a three to four year, uh, payback period, um, mm -hmm. which is about right. That's where I want to see the number. If I'm making a short-term rental investment, I want at least 25% cash on cash. Don't settle for less. That's kind of where you need to be. Um, okay, yeah, that's what I was getting at. So 25% is how you see like, that's like the, the lowest number where you're kind of like, okay, I'm getting excited now. I'm going to look at this one a little harder because 25% is kind of in the wheelhouse or greater. Yeah, and I like oh, to run the cash. numbers. I like to run the numbers yeah. a little bit conservatively. I, I really do because yeah, I mean, for there's, sure. You know, so yeah. so it's it's twenty five percent on the conservative side with upside. Right. So you know, really, where this should end, uh, in my opinion, is is if you're if you're at a twenty five percent and you're truly at a twenty five percent your first year, like I said, your cash flow will probably go up just due to inflation, uh, due mm. to just rents increasing due to your property having more reviews, et cetera, et cetera. So usually you're looking at about a three-year payback period, which is pretty good for a short-term rental. So um, if you can find something that that hits those those numbers, I think it's it's worth yeah. exploring for sure. Well, and a three-year a three -year payback period would be 33% cash on cash return. Correct. Right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, compare that to the stock market, like you said, if it's going to average, you know, on past episodes, we've talked a lot about Investing in stock market, investing in index funds that are low cost, so there's going to be broad market or S and P 500 index funds, and those typically over the past, you know, several several decades have done eight, ten, maybe twelve percent. 
You know, that's kind of where that's the range you're looking at over the long, long term. So here's an asset class that could do 25, 30, 35% over the long term. Right. With more risk, but more and more work, but more reward. Right. So, yeah, completely you know. up to you how you want to do it. So, you might be asking yep. yourself, all right, um, you know, I have a I have a W two. I can afford my own house. How the heck can I qualify for a loan on a second home? Uh, hmm. so, that is the question, isn't you know, it? <laughs> how, how do you how do you even get into how these? How do you buy one of these things? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this all sounds good, but I yeah. don't know that I'm going to underwrite. So there's kind of two <laughs> two main ways that people will buy. Um, and one is the second home loan. So, th- so somebody that actually has a high W-2 that's living well below their means that could actually qualify to pay that mortgage, to, p- to pay that mortgage on that investment property, you could do a second home loan and put as little as 10% down. Um, and it has to be, if you do that, you know, it's gotta be occupied for some portion of, uh, of the year. You'll have to ask your lender, you know, look at all the, all the rules and stuff like that. But uh, a second home loan is for just that. It's supposed to be a second home to you, at least during some portion of the year. But it's, it is the cheapest way to get in because you can literally put 10% down um, versus an investment loan, uh, which we'll talk about next, um, where you would have to put at least 20% down, uh, sometimes 25% down. So, right. Um, there's a there's a product a mortgage product called a DSCR loan. Um, DSCR stands for debt service coverage ratio. All that means is they are underwriting the property based upon the rent that they expect to get. So we talked about um, AirDNA. And you can plug in any address in the United States, bedroom, bath count, guest count, and it will actually give you the expected rental revenue. Well, that tool is so accurate um, that there are lenders out there that will actually lend money to investors who don't have the W-2 income or the the income on their tax return to be able to qualify for a mortgage, but they will literally allow you to, to get a mortgage on that property uh, using a debt service coverage ratio loan because they know that the rent uh, will far outweigh the expenses, assuming they look up the address and kind of the numbers work out. So, um, Debt service coverage ratio can be a great way to kind of get in if you have a low um, kind of W-2 or income and you still want to do this sort of investing. Um, I mean, you you could be in a situation where you have a lot of cash reserves, but you're going through a career change and you don't have a lot of income coming in, but you still want to do this investing. DSCR is a perfect way to kind of get in. And I'll say that the downsides are usually your interest rates higher. Usually you're right. Uh, it's usually a full point higher, uh, which stinks. Uh, but it, you know, you're allowed, you, you can get into a property, you can still invest. Um, and then your, uh, down payment is also higher. Usually it's 20 or 25%, depending on where the property is located. Usually in city limits, you can get away with 20%. But if it's like a rural area out in the mountains somewhere, uh, sometimes they'll make you put 25% down. Well spoken. Yeah. The fees and the additional um, down payment 
um, fees, meaning the additional interest rate point is, uh, it, it can, it can make a huge difference, but you don't have to provide any tax information, any, any sort of tax returns or W2 income or anything like that. Pretty amazing that that exists out there. Um, I'm not, sh- I don't know how long they're going to be around, Scott. I don't know if you've heard anything about that, but to me, it just feels like kind of, kind of crazy that that even exists well they have there are some rules around it. it it depends on what lender you're going with but um a lot of the lenders will make you have some sort of rental experience before they will give you one of these loans so it, and it could even be like a long-term mm. rental so if it, even if you're just doing a long-term rental and you've done it for like a year they'll allow you to get into it but like if you're just a brand new investor no experience doing any rentals, um, they might not underwrite you. So you got to work with the lender, um, talk to them, see what their, you know, their, their criteria is, um, as to whether or not the DSCR would work. All right, Lance, I want to get into kind of, uh, the secret sauce here. This is the secret sauce. When you've got an Airbnb, we're going to talk about furnishing and, uh, X factor and kind of building out your listing and kind of making things stand out, right? Make it pop. There are properties out on Airbnb. You know, you got a condo. Like, I, for, for instance, for instance, Lance, I have a condo. It's in a building with, you know, 30 other condos, right? Our condo does almost double what the worst condo does. It's the exact same floor plan, exact same square footage, the difference, the difference mainly is ours is a little bit more updated and the design is way, 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 way better. So interior design, interior design, way better. And yeah. this matters so much. I mean, it could be as simple as the comforter, yeah. the curtains, things yeah. that are not super, super expensive. How about this? The quality of the photos. Well, the quality of the photos matters Big. Hire hire a professional photographer. Don't use your cell phone. Don't oh uh, don't just snap some pictures and uh, throw it up. Smash smash it up there on the uh, the old Airbnb and hope you're going to get some listings. It amazes me how many people do it's, not spend four hundred dollars on those photos. And those Listen, photos man. are are your best marketing material. Think about this. Think about this now. Let's let's zoom out for a minute. You have people who are searching on a desktop, a laptop or even crazier, their smartphone, and they're looking through tiny little pictures on a screen to decide where they're going to spend some serious money to go on their getaway. And who knows how many of these getaways they get a year, maybe one or two. And this is special for them, right? It's a special experience. They're making their decision based on these photos and reviews. That's it. Right. That's it. A little bit of your write-up. Sure. Sure little bit of location and everything, but they're looking at photos. They're looking at reviews. They're looking, that's what they're looking at. It's they, mainly they the photos. The photos it's kind of mainly sell. the photos. Yeah. It's mainly the photos. But, but if so you got crappy design, furniture, it don't matter how good your photos are. <laughs> if you well, got- <laughs> you know, you can dress some things up. I mean, but it'll play out in the reviews. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to have crappy furniture. You want to have nice stuff and you want it to be taken care of. Um, but yeah, I mean, you want to have nice stuff. You want to have nice, nice photos and great interior design that that yeah. pops. So if you're if you're like me 
and you are not good at interior design, you might want to consider actually (laughs) hiring an interior designer. Uh, There's people that will actually do your entire Airbnb setup for you. So like you give them the space, you just, you know, give them the floor plan and give them some pictures and they'll do the whole thing. Um, but just, just know it, it does cost quite a bit to furnish a property. You're looking at 20 to $25 per square foot, uh, to furnish, uh, kind of the right way, um, to be able to maximize kind of your, your revenue and your cash flow. So keep that in mind. Um, but also be real with yourself. Like if you are not kind of the best with design, it makes a whole lot of sense to hire somebody for a few thousand dollars to design your place properly to get guests in the door because people are making their decision based on those photos and what's in your home and how it's designed and how it's curated. And it's all, it's all a big feeling. And I got news for you. Most people that are booking a short-term rental are women. Okay. They're not, they're not dudes out there that are just like, ah, whatever. Like, I don't care. (laughs) It's, it's women. Women are the ones that are making the decisions on this and they care about design. Most women care about That's design. Very true. Very true. Another thing I want to hit on, Lance, is every property needs an X factor. And this is another reason why there's certain properties that absolutely mm. crush it versus their competition. They might be right next door to each other with the exact same floor plan, sleeping the exact same amount of people. But if one's got a hot tub and a fire pit and a game room, well, I got news for you. That one's going to book for probably 50 to 100% more per night than the one that doesn't, right? So plan that into your budgeting process. You got to figure out a way. Like if you can, uh, you know, Michael Elefante, the, the guy that, that I took the course from, he talks about having an Instagrammable moment in your home. So maybe like a photo wall or something, something that, Mm. you know, somebody could stand in front of and take a picture or have a, he, you know, have some sort of X factor, whether it be a fire pit, whether it be a game room, whether it be, um, it, it could even just be as simple as like an indoor fireplace that really gets highlighted well in your photos or an arcade machine or there's just so many little things that really go a long way. People are trying to have an experience when they go on vacation and properties that have this X factor are going to outperform like crazy properties that don't because I I see it every day in the markets that we're in. It's crazy how much we book versus our competitors. And it's simply because we have more amenities than they do. And, And we're getting payback on those amenities almost in the first year. Wow. All right, Lance. So obviously furnishing X factor, very, very, very important, but um, you also got to build out a great listing. So take your time Ooh, it's true you when do. you do this, um, mm. get the copy down, you know, write, kind of write like a little bit of a story, kind of get them into the, into the feel of the oh, home. I like that. it's, it's um, you know, really spend some time on, on your description. Don't make it too long. You know, bullet point out kind of the key, the, the key pieces that people need to know. The the skimmers what, like myself. What's nearby? What's gonna? What's a what's a long weekend at your place gonna look like? What are your guests gonna do? What are they gonna enjoy? How are they going to um, spend the, their time relaxing in the hot tub or by your fireplace or in the fire pit outside at night? You know, making samoras with their loved ones. You know, you gotta kind of like get without getting like cheesy. 
you do have to kind of, I like what you said, Scott, you have to, you have to paint a story, you have to tell a story and, and people will read that hopefully and see themselves in that story and be like, with, along with the pictures, right. it's like, oh, that, that's exactly I'm what book, I'm looking I'm for. Booking. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's, <laughs> that's what I need. What I Book done. Yeah. Check. You, One less thing I got to do today. I've just booked my Airbnb. I'm done. Yeah. Don't, uh, you know, if you're going to spend all this money, you know, setting this up and, you know, getting everything just right, don't skimp on the actual listing copy itself and the description and gi- giving people all the information that they need to book. Yeah. And let me go off here just for one minute here, a little tangent. I mean, there's little tiny things you can do with the property itself um, outside of, of building the listing. Uh, something like as simple as a tea bar and a coffee bar, and then like a little, a couple little surprises that they aren't expecting that's not really in the listing. Um, I mean, it's helpful to know what the kitchen's equipped with. So, like, at a coffee bar, like we have a picture of like a pour over carafe and like a coffee bean grinder so that they just know that these things are there for them. A, a French press, if they like to do that type of coffee yeah. in the morning and, and then just a regular drip machine. So they have all these different like like options they can do and then some tea as well that's complimentary. But then when they get there, like our guests, like they know that they can or they're going to be surprised with some Hershey's chocolate for like some s'mores. Mm-hmm like a little s'more station. They're going to have two little things of popcorn and then some additional snacks that are like totally like just there and re- our cleaner replaces them every time yeah. out of the owner's closet. And it's just like a little bit of a, oh man, this is cool. Like I get some snacks while I'm here too and it's all included. And man, these guys are really think it's just more of like hospitality and less about like technology and numbers and all this. It's just being a good host right. to your guests. Yep. I love that. I absolutely love that. Yep. Um, and and kind of before we move on uh, out of Airbnb, kind of get into the questions, I just do, I do want to hit on like, and I think we've done a pretty good job of this, but like, obviously this is not set it and forget it. This is no get rich quick thing. Like this is, yeah, no. this is active investing, especially up front it becomes more passive as time goes on because you've got the property set up and literally you're just dealing with your cleaner and your handyman and your guests and your communication with the guests um, on a limited basis. But like this, there's, this is in no way a way to kind of get rich quick. Um, It does require a decent amount of work up front. Um, And it's, and, and it can be something that's, that's pretty passive, but it is not truly passive like an index fund would be so keep that all in mind before you decide to do the airbnb investing but you know i love it i absolutely love it and um you know i got the itch like i want another property (laughs) yeah for sure and then one last thing i'll add as kind of a cherry on top scott you said it really well but you know make sure you are investing responsibly and what we mean by that is like you know before you pull a trigger on one of these it's a huge commitment Yes, you're committing to a 15 or a 30 year fixed rate mortgage, hopefully, um, you know, to get the lowest rate that you possibly can. But like, look, you got to know your numbers. You got to know that, you know, you did your analysis properly, that all the research is there to support the the comparable uh, properties and the average daily rent coming in and what it's going to cost you to run the property month to month. We want you to have six months of those operating expenses 
in that checking account specifically for that property, not your own savings emergency account, not your own, uh, you know, checking personal account, a separate account just for the property that has six months of operating expenses. You will sleep at night. You will know that that's there and you may have, you know, months that do very well and months that don't do very well, but you have that buffer there. It's crucial, absolutely crucial. You have to be able to handle the unexpected because I will tell you the unexpected will happen. <laughs> Neighbors be acting crazy, all kinds of stuff. Man. <laughs> that's all that's all I'm gonna say. And you know, things will write themselves out over time. You gotta ride out the storm. Uh, it's really, really important. So, you know, make sure you have the proper amount of cash before you dive in. And if you're not there yet, it's okay. It's okay. Take your time, save, let it be a goal for you. Um, hopefully, you know, it's 2023, you have your goals written down, you have your goals or in your mind, or, you know, you have some new goals this year to go after. This would be a good one, um, to start building up, uh, if you're interested to get into it. So that's all I got. All right, Lance, we got some questions that need answers. If you have a question that needs an answer, please write us at questions at dollarsandhops.com. Again, it's questions at dollarsandhops.com. We have two questions tonight from Jason Crosby. Thank you for writing in, Jason. This first one is for you, Lance. This one says, reports are showing different industries, retail, hospitality, sports, taking a hit in mm. 2024 through 2027. How much should data research affect career choices for young people deciding on career paths? Jay Cross, what's up, bro? Thank you for the questions. Um, always appreciate you sending in questions for our pod. They get us thinking, get us outside the box. Uh, this question is interesting. For young people deciding on a career, um, on career paths, I assume you're kind of talking about your kids. I know you got a lot of them, like me. Your kids are a little bit further along, so it makes sense. I love how you're thinking about this. Um, yeah, I think I think research is always a good thing. It's always helpful to think about uh, where are the trends going. You know, where is the ROI? You know, this episode we talked a lot about cash on cash return and ROI, return on investment. Um, I don't think it's that different for looking at a career. I think you know, let's zoom out for a minute. But college. I think we can all agree that college has gotten to a point in the United States of America where it's a problem. It's overpriced. The return on investment isn't necessarily there all the time. It cannot be assumed that that's there. What we need is more research. I would agree. But I would also say that I think for the child or for a young person who's deciding on a career path, I think what's more important than the research um, is what they're passionate about. You know, Are they passionate about healthcare and is a nursing field or a physical or a uh, you know physical therapy or physician assistant or doctor program is that is that of interest to them um, or are they interested in a trade and maybe they don't need to go to college maybe they can be an electrician or a plumber or you know there's there's all kinds of carpentry trades out there that you know they can provide real value make really great money and not have any student loan debt or have to pay any additional dollars for you know, higher education, a second at a collegiate or university level. Um, so I think, I think research is very helpful, but I also think that like, we're all called, we all, you know, we're all blessed with different strengths and giftings. And I think like for a young person looking at a career path, it's not necessarily what's the greatest ROI, but you know, what, what kind of gets your juice going? What's what, what gets that young person excited 
what are they interested in and kind of let that be a guide and then couple that with the research to see what makes sense is if is it coding is it a coding school are they interested in technology is it sales they can they have the um, gift of relationship building and solving problems and they like talking to people and meeting lots of new people that's a great that's a great basis for a sales career um, and so I, I would just say you know often um, different industries taking a hit you know in the short term like in a three year span. I'm not as concerned about that. I'm looking more for a career path. That's that's the word you chose in this for a young person, a career path. Career path is a long, that's a long thing. So I'm looking for the long term on that. And the skills that are needed for that career path are kind of what I would be focused on. And then how do you acquire those skills? How do you meet people who are already doing that? Sit down with them, understand how you know they operate, they think, they tick, whether they their days look like. And, um, that's kind of how I, I would be thinking about that. I hope that's helpful, Jay, but, um, we will, I would love to talk that about that more with you offline, but, um, thank you for submitting that question. Scott, we got another one here from Jason, my brother here in the Hanahan area, Charleston area. Scott, he asks this, Ooh, it's an FTX question. The dreaded FTX. This is our first real real mention of FTX in the pod, and we might just do a whole episode on this once all details emerge, but here we go, Scott. Jason writes in, with the recent collapse of FTX, how should we vet or caution against individual investing, such as Robinhood, Acorn, etc., versus using traditional trade sites, brokerage sites? I use Fidelity, and it's always straightforward. Scott, I think this is a really, really good question. Um, you know, how should we vet these things and should we be concerned? So, yes, you should be. You should be concerned. So you say F, so FTX, Lance. All right. Is it, what is was FTX? It, it was is a crypto FTX? exchange. OK, here's the problem with a crypto exchange just in general. Is your Tell trading, me the problem. It's it's the crypto. <laughs> the crypto itself is the problem. <laughs> so crypto is not a security, okay? And why that's important is because an exchange that is not trading securities doesn't have SIPC insurance. So a lot of people know what FDIC insurance is. That's when you got money in a in a checking account or a savings account at a bank and there's there's protection against that bank going bankrupt and you losing your money. The the government will actually step in and say you know, your money's insured by us. If the bank goes under and for, for whatever reason they can't pay, we will give you your money. SIPC insurance is basically securities um, FDIC version. So if you have money that's sitting in a SIPC insured account uh, and that company goes bankrupt, well, guess what? You're just fine. But given that FTX and a lot of these other crypto exchanges are built for cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency is not a security, it is not insured, which means you have to trust the company that you are trading your cryptocurrency on uh, that they will actually fulfill their promise of uh, giving you that cryptocurrency if you so choose and if you want to sell it and all that stuff. So for me, 
Um, I think uh, I would stick with more of the traditional path, which would be more of like your Fidelity and your Charles Schwab and your Vanguard. And on most of those, you cannot actually trade cryptocurrency, except for on Fidelity. I think they do allow it now. They now Um, do, yes. Maybe for like Bitcoin or something. But if I was going to buy Bitcoin, Lance... I would do it through Fidelity rather than any of these other jokers who are all going out of business because they are a sham. Okay, that's yeah. exactly what they are. So if Ooh, I was a Bitcoin dude, yeah. I would go I would go on Fidelity and buy some Bitcoin because at least they're a reputable company uh, that's been around for a really long period of time without a yeah. crazy dude with crazy hair running it in his basement <laughs> with some other chick that looks like she's 19 years old with some other like i don't know what the heck's going on <laughs> right but they're supposed yeah. to be geniuses right, right. okay so right. yeah oh they were For, geniuses all right they were geniuses until uh, uh until they got caught they were geniuses until they weren't yes exactly until they so weren't um, i would say st- stick with the the, yeah. the more traditional companies here i agree and and i'll pile on here i can't help myself um you know with crypto exchanges they are not uh SEC regulated. Right. They Which, are not SEC right. regulated. They are not so SEC what regulated. What that means is crazy. you know, this is a private entity that's not SEC regulated, and people are just handing money in and trusting. It's all about trust. Billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. And not just individuals and people, that too, but major, major investment firms that quote unquote did their due diligence and did their, and and we trust this guy. We trust him. He seems trustworthy and he put on a good show and he told a good story and come to find out, you know, it seems like there might've been a little bit of fraud, a little bit of fraud, just a little uh, bit, just a little bit to the tune of seven or $8 billion, the largest fraud in American or even world history. Made, I mean, really, made off that's what it is. Saint. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think, I think I go back to the fact that crypto is still the wild west. I still don't even understand it. So your boy ain't investing in it, but, um, you know, for people who want to invest in it, that's fine. Just know there, there, this type of risk is there. It's not SEC regulated. However, the New York stock exchange, the stock market in the United States is SEC regulated and this kind of stuff is um, regulated against and checks and balances against it. So um, that would be my pile on here. If Scott is correct. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. And I mean, he specifically was asking about Robin Hood, Acorn and like, I, I, I don't. I don't have. A, I don't really have a good taste in my mouth about Robinhood. I'm not calling it a scam or well, anything. We've talked like about Robinhood on this podcast but, several times. But I, I don't like Robinhood. Some of the crazy no, shenanigans like they've pulled over we the don't years. Like I don't really know much about Acorn. But like, there's no reason to get cute here. Like, just yeah. just yeah. get just go with uh, a very traditional, boring company. Put, put it this way: uh, Robinhood and Acorn aren't going to make you any more money. They're not going to do you any additional favors. There's nothing special you're right. gaining by going. I like what you said. It's not. This isn't like an area to get cute. Um, it's an area to go with the tried and tested and true brokerage houses that have been around for a long time, who are secured, and regulated, and checked, and audited, and fair, and open. And there's and and you're not gonna um, 
in very, very, very low chance you're going to run into this type of a problem that FTX just ran into. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, I don't know how else to say that. I don't know how to say that. Yeah. All right. All right, Lance, let's go ahead and get into the hops showdown portion of the podcast. How was the black cherry hard seltzer from Kirkland Signature or Costco? From Costco, I guess. Well, no hops in this one, so minus 10 points <laughs> off the bat because this is the Dollars and the Hops podcast, and I'm sipping on a drink with no hops. So minus 10 points there, minus another 10 points uh, for it being a hard seltzer. <laughs> and not an actual beer. It just kind of tastes a little bit flat. Uh, and then minus another 10 points because I'm trying to be a little bit harder on my drinks this year. So we're going to be a little bit more of a tough grader. And uh, minus another might three a, points. Might have another, minus another a, a three points low. for the, for the uh, uh, limited flavor that it did possess. I will say, so that's going to be a, um, let me see, three, 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 and then three. So 67 is what I'm going to give it. But. But out of all the hard seltzers I've had, I will say this was the best one by far, by far. It, That's because it, it's from Costco. I, it, and it was like a it's dollar. From Costco. You it's love great. it. You it's love the price. I love it. You cheap. I love it. You cheap. <laughs> I am cheap. I don't care. It's hard seltzer. It's from Kirkland. It's great. I, uh, if you want to go the hard seltzer route ever, it's a hundred calories. It was cheap. And, um, it was enjoyable for a hard seltzer. It's light. It's nice. Um, your boy liked it. Um, however, it ain't no IPA. It ain't no hazy IPA. It gets a 67. It's a hard seltzer. What do you expect? Come on. 67 is pretty high, Lance. 67. But, yeah, it's, uh, pretty, it's the highest hard seltzer it's ever going to get on this pod. It, it is, yeah. That's the second lowest score we've ever done. Once upon a time, I gave a beer a 30. So you'll have to <laughs> tune in and find that episode episode 36 um i was drinking thanks again aunt carol uncle dan thank you so much for the beer this is from brew dog brewed out of ohio i think cleveland ohio this is the hazy jane pineapple um you know i love hazy i love a fruity hazy i love this one there's it's it's great i I, it's even got like it's like a like a citrusy but it's it, it's got a little sweet kick to it which is what i like it's perfect 90 we're gonna go with a 90 solid 90 it's a hazy usually the hazies make it into the 90s this one's no exception thank you again for the beer and carol uncle dan appreciate it that takes this hops portion of the pot i love it scotter take us out what kind of investor are you are you the set it and forget it type? If you are, Airbnb is really not right for you. If you're someone who wants an alternate way to investing in the stock market with the ability for far greater returns, consider Airbnb investing. It is really not crazy to get 30, 40% cash on cash returns, uh, which is something you're really never going to get in the stock market. Um, But obviously, if you're going to go the Airbnb route, remember, have a plan in place for management as it's not a completely passive investment. We talked about many, many things to make it mostly passive, but it is not purely passive. This is Lance. This is Scott. Live and give on less than you make and invest the difference. Maybe in an Airbnb. Dollars and Hobbs out. 
Well, no hops in this one, so minus 10 points off the bat because this is the Dollars and the Hops podcast, and I'm sipping on a drink with no hops. 